0: I
1: am tackling a subject similar to some of these that I've been tackling. I tackled the same basic subject about 18 months ago. However, I'm taking a completely different approach. This time we continue to build on what was given earlier, and this time I'm actually borrowing fairly significantly from another pastor that I appreciate and respect a great deal. His name is Vodi Bacham and I like the organization of the information that's being shared here, and so I have to give him credit because I'm following very precisely his organizational methods. Plus, in order to make this a two-parter, I had a few things that I just had to throw in that he didn't because I wouldn't have had time to do all that in one session. So that's why I've expanded Vody's message a little bit. He has been refining this particular lesson, Bible lesson. I wouldn't say so much that it's preaching as teaching, I guess there's a slight differentiation between that. Sometimes when you're preaching, you have to get people fired up. Can I get an amen? That's preaching. But if it's teaching, then we're presenting an awful lot of good information. I still think that if you look at what Paul the Apostle was doing, a lot of what he was doing was teaching, (laughs) even though they called it preaching. So the two kind of converge quite a bit. You know what I'm saying? So this is more of a teaching-style sermon if you want to call it that, and it's going to be a two-parter. I'll show you when we get further into it what we're going to pick up next week as part two. So I just wanted to give Vody the credit because he's been refining this particular talk, and he teaches at a lot of different colleges, both here in the United States and in Africa, where he moved so he could be a part of a university faculty there. So here we are. Why do I choose to believe the Bible? It's important that I use that as the title rather than another title like the one that I gave before because I'm not really defending the Bible and we'll see what I'm talking about here in just a minute. So first question that we need to answer is, why the Bible? Why do we elevate the Bible, we Christians, meaning those of us who believe, why would we elevate the Bible above any other religious book? Because we've got the Koran, we've got some other religious books that people who have been inspired have written. Well, it's kind of critical. Why is it so critical? because everything we discuss related to Christianity and what we believe and why we believe it hinges on this question, is the Bible reliable? So that's why I think it's important that we look at it, and that's why I included more information than Vodi Bachum did in his original talk, because I wanted to expand on that and really deep today. Uh, if you say, oh, well, I, I want some in-depth study You're about to get it right now because we're going to dive deep into this because I think it's so important that we understand why we can choose to believe that the Bible is in fact an inspired book and we're going to look at five different things, the first three today and two more next week. All right, here are two answers that we are used to hearing and that maybe some of us have actually even given when somebody asks, well, why would you want to believe the Bible anyway? Why would you think that it's an inspired book or that it's more valuable than other religious books? Here's one. My parents raised me to believe in the Bible. Now, I don't want to disparage parents raising their kids to believe in the Bible. That's great. Mine did, and I'm grateful for it. It's good that somebody was raised to believe that the Bible is trustworthy. However, that's not going to be the strongest answer to give somebody who's asking for a defense of the Bible. Why do you believe it? Now, I know this is going to come as a real shock to some of you, but your parents aren't perfect. I know. I I know it's a shock, but there's going to come that time for all of us as kids growing up when we reach an age that suddenly it dawns on us. My parents told me that if I didn't wear a hat out in the winter in January in Michigan, I was going to catch a cold. And then we hear from other sources that say, no, not wearing a hat is not what causes a cold. A cold is called a virus, and so it doesn't have anything to do with wearing a hat or not. And we think, you lied to me, Mom! (laughs) And so suddenly we start to question what our parents taught us about. Or they would say, don't stick your tongue out and cross your eyes, because your face will stick that way. Well, guess what? My face is just fine, thank you very much. (laughs) And so we start to doubt what our parents say. So just saying my parents raised me to believe it, it's not really a good enough answer, especially to those who are skeptical and who are curious, and rightfully so. It's okay to have good curiosity, but where they're looking for stronger answers than just, my parents told me so. So if your parents taught you, that's great, but I want you to dig even deeper and start looking for good reasons, valid reasons, why you can choose to trust the Bible. Someone who would like to pull the rug out from underneath your statement, my parents raised me that way, could also say, well, there are other people whose parents raised them to believe in a very different holy book. So what's different? That's why we need to dive deeper, okay? Here's another one. Here's the second uh, thing that we might hear. Well, I tried it, and it changed my life. That's good, too. I mean, I have tried it. I've looked into the scriptures. There was one particular year when the Bible became really alive to me more than any other year. That was my first year away from home, and I started reading it for myself (laughs) so that it wasn't just listening to what my parents said about it. I wanted to dive into it for myself. So my freshman year of college was a big year when I discovered, wow, there's a lot of good stuff in the Bible, and it means something to me, and it means something to me personally. So I can personally say I have tried it, and it has changed my life, because the Bible is changing all of us who get into it that way. But again, when we're looking at somebody who's skeptical with good, solid, reasonable questions, it's not going to be a good enough answer to say, I tried it and it changed my life because somebody else could say, oh yeah, well I tried fill in the blank and it changed my life too. (laughs) So if we're just in this age of personal experience, which is equated with every good thing, it's not really a good enough answer. Someone could say, good for you. I'm glad you tried it. I'm glad it worked for you. Not for me though. I've tried something else and it's working for me. So. Go ahead. There are some compelling stories, and I mean some good stories, about people who had a very specific and profound experience, and it changed their life, and that experience was dead wrong. Uh, you should read at some point the biography of Malcolm X. Very interesting story. That's one case in point. I won't go into the details here. Don't have enough time. But he thought he had had this great experience, and he believed in something, and it was dead wrong. So he had a big pivot, change of heart, change of attitude, change of mind later in his life. That's why we can't trust experience alone. Let me illustrate why I think it's important that we have a really good, solid response to people who ask, why do you choose to believe the Bible? This is something that was shared by Vody Bauckham, that pastor that I told you about, because he was teaching a group of college students, and one of the girls in his class had this experience personally said a couple of weeks after she had heard Vody teaching on this subject using the same outline that I'm using for you. She was in a class in college. It was a biology class, and the professor started asking certain questions and said, do any of you disagree with this particular thing that I'm teaching? And this girl raised her hand. It's almost like you you find your hand raising on its own and you're going, no, no, put that down, put that down. I'm going to have to answer now if he calls on me. And he was basically saying, uh, yes. Do you have a problem with that? She said, well, yes, I do. And he said, why? She goes, because I believe what the Bible says. <laughs> Vodi says that the girl described it as being, you could almost see this professor salivating. And he got that look in his eyes like, <laughs> he couldn't wait to just pull the rug right out from underneath this girl's solid theology or whatever it was that she believed. And he said, okay, well, why is it that you believe That the Bible is true or that you can believe in the Bible. And he was expecting one of these two answers. He was expecting, well my parents taught me to believe it, or I tried it and it changed my life. But she didn't say that. Here's what she said. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. The professor said, I'm going to have to get back with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) It started a good conversation between this college student and a professor who had never heard that specific response to the question, why do you believe the Bible is trustworthy? Now, as I prepare for us to look deeply into good reasons for why we can trust the Bible, let me answer an objection that comes up at this point very often in these kinds of discussions. Some would say, Well, for you to use the Bible in defense of the Bible, isn't that circular reasoning? That doesn't seem very fair. And here's where I have to say, I'm not trying to defend the Bible. I'm showing you why I trust the Bible. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, that great English preacher. He said, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion, you only have to let him loose. The lion will defend himself. Why would I appeal to the Bible as I seek to answer the question, why do you believe it? Because, and this is important folks, there is no higher written authority than the Bible. That's why I believe the Bible is such an important and different book than any other religious book. In fact, we're going to look today at one specific New Testament passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you've got your own Bible in whatever form you can access it, let me direct your attention there because this will be the primary passage that we'll look at. I'm going to bring in quite a few other secondary or other passages that relate to this thing, but look at 2 Peter chapter 1. It's helpful for us to know that as Peter is writing to his audience, in these words he's actually writing to talk about the authority of the scriptures. So this is very valid for us and it's important. He says, starting at verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice, talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, Verse 19, we also have heard the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, said that he was able to access this with his own senses. He heard the voice. He understood that Christ was being affirmed by God the Father. And then we also know because we had heard that same voice, others who were eyewitnesses had seen something at the baptism of Jesus. There were two different times, both with eyewitnesses. There's something supernatural outside the realm of our known empirical knowledge that happened. And so this is eyewitness evidence. Why I choose to believe the Bible. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Hmm, it's different than many other holy books. The Bible is a collection of writings. There's not just one individual who has an inspiration or a vision and then writes the whole book. That's happened with other historical books. But this is a collection of writings and it's important for us to grasp that. This is not just one sitting, somebody who took 40 years and wrote through the span of their own lifetime. This was actually a collection written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, by over 40 different authors, from kings to fishermen. So we're talking about a wide birth of different kinds of backgrounds here. They represented all kinds of walks of life. There were tax collectors, they were historians, they were doctors, many different people from different walks of life comprising 66 volumes, and these volumes cover literally hundreds of topics, over a period of 1500 years. It's a unique book in that sense, a collection of books. 66 volumes over 1500 years? Wow! And yet, it's important for us to know that no one person can make the claim of having written the Bible because this collection is valid, and it's inspired by one person, and we can see that because of the thematic approach that ties everything together. It's astounding when you can see how cohesive all these themes are. We can see from Luke, a physician, a rather detailed fellow, and a historian, Luke chapter one, verses one through four, what his approach to starting to collect these things were when he was compiling his own gospel. He says, that Luke wasn't an eyewitness himself to many of these things. He investigated the people and events in his volume that was gleaned from their writings and from eyewitness events, both from the writings and from personal interviews. He was a contemporary of eyewitnesses. So one reason that we have multiple gospels is it's important to know that we're seeing from different vantage points and that they corroborate one another. Otherwise you could have had some people gather together and say, okay, this is our story and we're sticking with it. (laughs) It's a conspiracy, and the conspiracy is all gonna sound exactly the same. Any good investigative reporter will tell you, or any good detective will tell you. You're gonna need to see some differences in points of view for the real story to come out, and that's what we have in the different gospels. There were different goals for these different gospels too. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke's goal was really to talk about history and chronology, so in Luke we can see the events that were taking place very much in an orderly fashion and much more close to their chronology than we would in some of the other gospels. John's goal was evangelism. He writes, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John organizes his gospel around seven major signs that reveal Christ's identity and also his purpose. Different goal, different vantage point, same story, and they corroborate all these different events. Mark's Gospel. I love Mark because his is the shortest book because he's an action-packed guy whose goal was immediacy and brevity. In fact, one of his favorite words was straight away or immediately. He was the action guy. Let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the facts. And then there's Matthew. Matthew's Gospel was written to a Jewish audience, And he was trying to demonstrate specifically that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah. That's why he starts with a genealogy. It was important for them to understand that this genealogy could be traced all the way through all these generations to Jesus to show that he was the promised Messiah. Luke right off the bat says, I wanted to provide an orderly account. That gives us a clue that he's starting to collect things in a way that a good historian would. He wanted to be sure that it was orderly That it was factual, that it was based on good, solid research and his is. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories or myths when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can say the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents, and it was written by eyewitnesses. Peter goes on to say, we were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses of what, though? Of his majesty. That means that we have this reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses. I want you to say that with me. I'll do it and you just repeat the phrase after I do because I can't hear you. I don't know if you're doing it. We have in the Bible a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses. Good. You're well on your way to getting this deep dive into why somebody can choose to believe the Bible. Now let's check out 1 John, and the very first sentence, 1 John 1:1. that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That means the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses. Heard, seen, touched, proclaimed. All right, we see also that, this Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. In the Bible, we have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That also is very helpful because it helps shrink the timeline. Some people would say, oh, this was written so many years after the fact. No, not when somebody is still alive at the time this is being written so that there's corroboration available through people who were alive and saw these events themselves. This is Paul writing right here, 1 Corinthians 15, one through eight. Let me read a couple of these verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul writes, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Verse two, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Simon Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, this is the important part here, most of whom are still living. Aha. though some have fallen asleep, meaning physically died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. So there were several hundred, not just a couple of dozen, several hundred eyewitnesses who were still alive at the time when Paul wrote his letters to the Corinthians which we have in the New Testament. Here's where we need a little time out because I'm thinking about those skeptics and some of the questions that they would like to throw in about this point. They would say, oh, wait a minute. It said he revealed himself to the 12. But that's wrong, right? That's a contradiction because it wouldn't be 12 anymore. It would be 11 because Judas had already hung himself by that point. Well, that might be true unless you read ahead past the four gospels into the book of Acts. And so we need to do that. We need to take a look real quick at Acts 1, 12 through 26. and We see there that Matthias was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle. So it's back to being 12 again. 12 is such an important number, as we saw. We heard about that even this morning during our growth encounter. No, there's no contradiction here. And by the way, in order to be one of the 12, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. So not only was there truly a 12, the 12 apostles but we understand as well that it was important that Matthias was chosen because he also had been an eyewitness, spoken about by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Let me just mention real quickly here about the way many people tend to look at the Bible, and I've run into a lot of people in my conversations with them. I ran into a bunch of these folks back in college that first year when I started diving into it a lot for myself because I had a lot of time on my hands in the evenings talking with other people, including some skeptics and fellow Christians it's as though the skeptic jumps out when people get something like this. And when you say, I have a good solid biblical answer for that contradiction that you thought was there, and then you give that to them, you give them a good solid answer, instead of going, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Instead, they go, okay, well, I'm going to find something else. (laughs) And they just have this sense of wanting to try to find that discrepancy. They want to find a contradiction in there. There's something about the skeptic, that causes them never to be satisfied, never to say, you know, every time I turn around, there's a good solid answer for these things. Maybe I need to start thinking the Bible is trustworthy. (laughs) There comes a point at which in all of our lives, when we finally see enough truth presented to us, enough evidence, we finally just have to sort of surrender to the truth and say, yeah, I'm gonna accept this now. So instead of looking at the Bible by saying, I'm gonna find another mistake, we need to say, Maybe I should have an open enough mind and an open enough heart to ask good questions, but if there's a solid answer, I need to receive the answer. Here's some interesting facts about the Bible, and this is where I start going a little bit deeper and taking a little more time than Vodi Bachum did in his presentation. First of all, it's interesting to know that there are over 25,000 archaeological digs related to the Bible and the Bible's subject matter, 25,000. I mean, that's a lot of archaeological digs, and of course, at each dig, there are going to be hundreds or thousands of artifacts, so you multiply that by thousands, you're into the millions of artifacts. And here's the important thing, not one of those discoveries in these 25,000 plus archaeological digs reveals contradictions in the Bible. Not one. You'd be reading about them in all the archaeological journals. Most of the finds in these digs actually confirm biblical facts, and they affirm that the Bible is in fact trustworthy. 18 or 19 months ago, when I presented this basic sort of information, I talked about one archaeological discovery that was not too long ago, and they found something that validated that the people group called the Hittites actually existed. Prior to that time, some scientists and archaeologists Archaeologists, archaeologists, were saying, I don't believe the Hittites exist because it's in the Bible, but we're not seeing any archaeological evidence for that. And they're very empirical. They want to be able to see it and feel it and touch it. And it sounds like the New Testament. But they were saying, oh, we found something. So yeah, I guess the Hittites actually did exist. So how can we trust that a document that has been translated so many times is translated correctly? That's another big question that comes from skepticism. It seems logical that if you would translate something and repeatedly copy what's just been copied from another copy to another copy, that you would have some mistakes. Well, if you did it that way, yeah, chances are that you would find some mistakes in there. But consider these additional facts. This is important. Translations came not just from copies of copies of copies, but the translators would always go back to the oldest known manuscript and get to the original source, to make their translation or their copy from. So think about this. You know the party game telephone, right? One person whispers into the ear of the next person some phrase, then that person turns and whispers into the ear of the next person, and so on, all the way around the room until you get to the last person, and then they say what they thought they heard, and usually it's wildly hilarious because it's so different than the original. But the way the translations have been done, it would be more like person number two goes to person number one, And they copy exactly, word for word, what that person says. Then person number three doesn't get it from person number two. He goes back to person number one. And he gets the same original source and tries to copy that as meticulously as he can. Then person number four goes to person number one. Number five goes to one. Number six, number 723 goes to person number one. How accurate is it going to be if you're getting the same information from the same original source? Much more accurate. Now, consider this, and I think this is very interesting to be able to compare the ancient manuscripts that we know as the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, because there's some astounding facts that are going to just blow your mind when you find that out. Anybody who's had anything to do with ancient literature knows that to try to come up with an old manuscript, the older the better, because you want to get it as close to the source as possible, and you want a number of manuscripts, why is that important? You can compare them and see if they're close to one another or not, or if they have been translated differently, if there's lots of differences showing up there. Well, let's look at just three ancient pieces of literature. Aristotle's Poetics. We know of less than 12 copies of this in existence today. People don't think, oh, that never existed. No, they believe they exist. You know how long it was between the time it was written and the time we get the earliest known copied manuscript? 1400 years. 1400 years between the time Aristotle wrote his first copy of Poetics until we actually have a valid manuscript for that. Okay, how about Caesar's, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars? There are fewer than a dozen known copies of that one as well. 1000 years difference between the original writing and the earliest known manuscript. 1000 years. That's quite a long time. Now, the best example of real ancient literature, and this is really a good one here, Homer's Iliad, there are approximately 1,900 of those manuscripts. They found several more because of archaeology. used to be about 1,800 until just recently. That's a lot of manuscripts. That's great. That helps us validate that, yes, there was a Homer's Iliad, and it's been copied many, many times. That's great. How much time elapsed from the time Homer wrote the Iliad until we have our known copied manuscript? 2,000 years, 2,000 years. Okay, so now let's look at the New Testament real quick. New Testament, how many manuscripts? Oh, we have 25,000, 25,000, not less than 12, not 1,900, 25,000 manuscripts. And how close are they to the original? Many of in fact, most of the New Testament with the exception of Revelation because John was on the Isle of Patmos, he lived a lot longer than some of these other folks can be traced back to within 20 years of the original sources. That's why eyewitnesses were writing within the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. How accurate would you expect this to be, especially when you can compare and contrast those 25,000 manuscripts to make sure that they were copied correctly? I think that you can say this is a reliable historic document. Also, we need to know that the scribes who were tasked with making these copies were extremely obsessive about accurate copies. They had to be. They thought that was their calling in life. They were helping preserve the truth and tradition of the promised Messiah, and it was very important to them. The earliest group of scribes in the first century, so this is dating all the way back just very shortly after the time of Jesus, they were called the Tannaim, and they produced extensive guidelines for how they should produce accurate copies. One of the first things that they were tasked with was coming up with guidelines to make sure that when they were copying, they were doing it well and that they were doing it accurately. Another group came along, these Jewish scholars, they did further work to make sure that the copies of these manuscripts were extremely accurate. They were called the Masorets or the Masoretes. That's how we came up with the Masoretic text. You may hear of that when you're deep diving into all the different manuscripts that we have. The Masoretic texts are very interesting because by that time, they had recognized that it was important for them to understand the context for some of these things. And so the masorets did something to help us find the validity of the tense and specific vowels. And so they would put vowel pointers into the text so that we would be sure to read it correctly as we were reading it. Because in the earliest manuscripts, you didn't have vowels or vowel pointers. That's just the way they wrote it back then. Let me give you an illustration of how difficult it might have been to make sure that you were reading the correct way. If you were to try to read this without any vowels in it, in English, I could probably get that, especially because I'm fairly familiar with the passage this comes from, but how much easier is it for us to read it with the vowels like this? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and that comes from 2 Timothy 3.16. The first is almost like trying to read a whole series of sentences based on personalized license plates, <laughs> where people will purposefully leave out the vowels. But because the masorets did something to help us understand how you should read that, it made it really come alive. And so they added something, but they added something to make it accurate, not to take away from the accuracy. The Masorets comes from the Israeli term for tradition keeper which grows out of the Hebrew word for bond, which means the bond or covenant they had with God, Yahweh. So they believed that their work was so vital because it was helping maintain the traditions that spelled out the covenant between God and his chosen people. So they took their work extremely seriously. And I've mentioned several months ago, the first time I went through some of this stuff, that part of the copying rules that they had instigated were so painstaking, including things like counting the number, not just of the words in a chapter or in a passage, but the number of letters. And they knew for a fact, because they kept a log and a journal, they would know to look for this specific letter that would be at the center of a chapter. Then they would count every letter backwards and make sure that they had that number, and then they would count forward to the end of that chapter, and those two numbers had to match up. If they did that, they knew they had the exact same number of letters, and that meant they were closer to making sure it was perfect. Now, there still may have been a a jot or a tittle left out here and there. They might have forgotten to dot an I or cross a T. As we're comparing, those 25,000 manuscripts don't have anything to do with leaving out a significant fact. It only has to do with the kinds of mistakes you could expect for a copyist to make. While there were some mistakes, juxtaposing two letters in a word, things like that, The overall accuracy in copying was extraordinary. The variance in texts back then would mean that there were variations, but they don't change significant facts. The story is the same. The names were basically the same, except in some later manuscripts where they would change the city to reflect the city name that it was then because they got changed depending on the regime. Somebody would come in and call it Tiberius because the guy's name was Tiberius. (laughs) So it used to be a different city name. You know what I'm saying there? So the older we get to our original manuscripts, you might have some of the earlier original city names, which is cool, and we have most of those because we've been able to trace them back to really early manuscripts, especially thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls. For example, some translators prefer to use the Byzantine text type, which is found in the greatest number of manuscripts. Others prefer to use the Alexandria text type. Which do you prefer, Byzantine or Alexandrian? Well, sometimes there are some that would recognize that there's a slight difference in those, but it has to do more with the tone and the style because just as we know in English, there are certain styles of English that seem to come across a little bit better than some others. Let me give you an example here. If we were to read this, you have won $10 million dollars for one thing I'd be very excited, but we can know exactly what that's saying to us. Yes, I have won ten million dollars. Good. How about this one? Thou hast won dollars totaling ten million. That's sort of a King James bias there. And then y'all have won ten million bucks. That has a southern bias. (laughs) It's the same story. The verbiage is different depending on the style, depending on the region that you might be writing to, depending on your ultimate audience, but the story is the same, the amount is the same, nothing has changed in terms of the intent of what they're trying to get across. That's why contemporary scholars and the most recent translations of the Bible are actually more accurate than some of the older translations because they're going back to the earliest known sources in the earliest known languages and they're contemporizing the language to make sure that we can clearly understand what the intent was from the original source. So if you're looking at an NIV or the New English Translation, things that have been done just in a fairly recent time, they're not going to be copies of copies of copies. They're going back to the originals and they're in contemporary language that make it very clear what the original source had in mind. So you can trust that. Using all the available scholarly techniques then, we can trust that what we have in the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. I think that's good to know, and it shows me that I need to look with fresh eyes at the Bible and appreciate the astounding cohesiveness of this book that's actually a collection of reliable documents. Now for next week we're going to look at these two points. These eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of very specific prophecies, and who claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. So we'll get to unpack that and take it all the way through all five of our points. First of all, let me get you to repeat again with me those first three points in a sentence before we move on to our challenge as we close out today. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Very good. Now here's a challenge. How do you look at the Bible? Do you look at it with the eyes of a skeptic? And are you always trying to find something wrong with that passage? Or have you started to understand that there are things here that were given to us in a way that has not been given to us in any other book? It's a unique book. It's an authoritative book. And it's something that if we're really open to it, God can use it to change our hearts by revealing who he is and what he wants to do with us, for us, and through us. So what is behind, this is a good question for all of us to ask ourselves, what is behind that desire to disprove something useful, something that has been so strongly validated? Is it because there are some things in the Bible that really leave us unsettled? Spoiler alert, it's supposed to leave us unsettled. Many of the things in scriptures are supposed to unsettle us. It ought to undo us. It ought to unravel us. Because if it's exposing something that we chafe at, if we're called out by something in the Bible and we think, well, why are you calling me out that way? Scripture? <laughs> Maybe it's the Holy Spirit saying, because I'm calling out sin. And guess what? You're a sinner. <laughs> You're guilty of this sin. I get that so often in my personal study. And I dislike it sometimes because none of us likes to be called out. But there are times when I recognize, oh, man, I've been so prideful about that issue, or I've been so judgmental about that, or I recognize that I have a real strong bias in that area, and God is calling me out. He's starting to point out something that I realize needs to change. God, I need to change. Help me change. That's what the Bible is there for. If we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, something has to change. We can't say at the beginning of our walk with Christ, God, thank you for saving me. Now don't do anything to change me. It doesn't work that way. What we need to say is, I'm the clay, you're the potter. Mold me and make me. You have access to every part of me and it's going to squish and it's going to hurt and you're going to have to pound on me sometimes in order to get me flat enough to be able to remake me into a pot <laughs> so I can be filled to overflowing with living water. I know that was a weird analogy, but it's what came to mind. <laughs> but I know that somehow God's going to be squishing me and hurting me in the process. But I want it. I still want to be transformed into Christ's image, even though it's a painful process at times, because the ultimate outcome is to be holy as he is holy. And it's going to be pure as he is pure. And it's going to be with him for eternity in the place he's making for me. I want that. And so I'm praying that all of us, as we start to understand and appreciate all that the Bible is for us and how it's been given to us, That we'll start looking at it with fresh eyes and be able to say, God, what are you showing me through this? Rather than, how can I disprove it? That's what I would pray for all of us, me included. And I thank the Lord that He's given us this word that's so incredible. John says, let me close with this quote from John chapter 20. In his gospel, he says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Let's pray together. Father, I continue to be astounded as I look deeper and deeper into your word and how that word came to us. And I pray that others will start to see the glory, the beauty manifested to us through your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for showing that it is trustworthy and that we can trust it with our lives, with our eternal lives, by trusting you because you're revealed in it. And I pray that rather than having skeptical minds that are always looking to disprove, we'll start to open our hearts, that you'll soften those hearts enough that we'll be able to become pliable clay, knowing that you are the potter and you're transforming us, making us into some wonderful usable vessel so that we can help pour out your blessings and your glory to other people as well. Thank you for what you're going to do as you change us through your wonderful ancient words that are still just as applicable and just as relevant to us today as they were when they were written. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.